1: LCSWC.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of therapy notes today. Just use the promo code TherapyChat when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I am excited to bring you an interview with someone who is very experienced and knowledgeable in her field. I've had requests from listeners to share more content related to therapy with children. And this week's episode, as well as next week's, which is part two, will definitely fit the bill. My guest today is Janet Courtney, PhD, RPTS. Janet is founder of First Play Therapy, an infant play therapy model, and founder of the First Play Cafe blog. Dr. Courtney is author of Healing Child and Family Trauma Through Expressive and Play Therapies Art, Nature, Storytelling, Body, and Mindfulness. And she's also author and editor of the groundbreaking books Infant Play Therapy Foundations, Models, Programs, and Practice, and Touch in Child Counseling and Play Therapy An Ethical and Clinical Guide. She's a TEDx speaker, a registered play therapy supervisor, and past chair of the Ethics and Practice Committee for the Association of Play Therapy and past president of the Florida Association for Play Therapy. Since 1997, she was an adjunct professor in the School of Social Work at Berry University, Miami Shores, Florida. Her research into practitioner experiences of training in touch and developmental play therapy is published in the American Journal of Art Therapy, and the International Journal of Play Therapy. She offers a certification to practitioners in first play therapy and provides training to professionals in the ethical and clinical competencies of touch, expressive play therapies, and nature-based play therapy. Dr. Courtney has created a unique form of therapeutic storytelling called First Play Kinesthetic Storytelling that can be found in her children's book, The Magic Rainbow. She has been invited to speak nationally and internationally, including Bali, Indonesia, the Cayman Islands, England, Ireland, Morocco, Russia, and the Ukraine. You can learn more about Janet at her website, firstplaytherapy.com, and her blog, firstplaycafe.com. So let's dive right in to part one of my discussion with Janet Courtney, PhD, and we talk about using expressive and play therapies with children and families that have experienced trauma. Also, quick reminder, if you are interested in joining one of my trauma therapist consultation groups, registration will be opening in January 2021. So keep your ears open for that. More information will be available here and on my website. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And today, I'm very curious and excited to be bringing you an interview with Dr. Janet Courtney. Janet, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today.
1: Laura, thank you so much for the invitation. I've been really looking forward to it.
0: Oh, me too. I can't wait to dive in because most recently, you're the author of the book Healing Child and Family Trauma Through Expressive and Play Therapies, which the title right away just jumped out at me and I know my audience has really been asking to learn more about children and children's mental health so I think that this is going to be fascinating but before we even dive into that let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your work
1: Okay, well, I identify as a play therapist. And I'm also uh, my background is in social work. So I have a BSW and MSW. And my doctorate is in social work as well, my PhD. And I had I've been in private practice for a lot of years, beginning actually back in 1989 working with children and families before that, working with adults in mental health and working with adoption and foster care. And then, you know, just kind of focusing on maybe what I call a smorgasbord of different areas of problem areas and diagnoses, working with with children, especially in families and adolescents as well. So, you know, then, you know, during my private practice years, I decided I wanted to go back to school and further my education. And that's when I wanted to do some research in the area of play therapy. And then also, I was very curious about a topic called, well, the topic of touch. And this goes back to a mentor I worked with. Her name is Dr. Viola Brody. And I may talk a, a little bit more about her during our interview further, but she developed a technique called developmental play therapy. And that is very central to the work that I then springboard to create my own model of therapy called uh, First Play Therapy. So now through the years, I currently do a lot of writing. I do a lot of training and I um, enjoy my life in South Florida. And I have grandkids that I enjoy being with and a wonderful husband. And I um, anyway, so what else would you like to know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm so curious about so far what you've already talked about. I mean, I'm just so interested in even the the subtitle of your book. Well, I don't know if it's technically a subtitle, but it says Art, Nature, Storytelling, Body, Mindfulness. And then you also just mentioned Touch and Therapy, which is you know, in some ways, some people may see it as kind of controversial, but of course, touch is such a basic human need. So I hope we can get into that a little bit. And when we talk more about your first play therapy method. Mm -hmm. So right now in this time we're living through, as we record this, it's September 2020. You know, in the United States, we've had this pandemic that's been impacting all of us for about, six months in some places longer, I think on the West Coast, and it may have been impacting people even before March. But a lot of what I'm hearing is about how families are impacted, you know, not just by the physical health effects of coronavirus, but the, the mental health impact of this pandemic. And, you know, it's impacting families, but it's impacting the parents and the children, Pretty significantly, I feel.
1: You absolutely. And what, what we understand is, is that children are highly sensitive to the how their parents are feeling. So children are being impacted by this. I'm hearing that there's a lot more anxiety, especially anxiety, some depression with children. Parents have actually called me and said, well, you know, my child who was a very good sleeper, I never had a problem with her sleeping. Now she is not wanting to go to sleep. She's wanting to come to the room and, and, you know, be with me and I can't get her to, you know, lie down and you know what do I need to do about that so but then the other hand like I was saying children are very sensitive to how the parents are feeling so if the parents are going through a lot of stress right now maybe they've lost their jobs maybe financially they're you know strapped some families i know are are you know kind of on the cusp or of being evicted mm-hmm. and the the children absolutely look to the parents for the cues and so if they you know what we call cues of safety or cues of you know what it's everything's okay mom mm-hmm. mom and dad have it under control but if they see that mom is you know lost her job or dad has lost their job and that they are searching you know for to find a new job then a child you know even if you don't say to a child oh dad is really worried about this There is a saying that if you want to know what's going on in the family, just ask the children. (laughs) So true. Absolutely. Because they absolutely can feel it. I mean, even if the parents don't say I'm angry, or I'm upset, or I'm scared, a parent could walk in the room and a child could start feeling this pit in their stomach. And maybe but they don't consciously know that this pit in my stomach, this anxiety that I'm feeling is related to the parent. They just know that now I feel scared or now I have anxiety, and the parent may say, "Well, what's the matter? What What are you feeling?" And usually, what you'll get out of a child is, "I don't know," because children live in their bodies. You know, they live in the right brain mostly. They're not necessarily connecting to the right brain to the left brain of you know this is really what's going on. I'm scared because mom's scared, or I'm anxious because dad is anxious. But they just know that they feel that way, so it's hard for them to. Press. And then of course, parents might not have the awareness that, that it's like, oh, my daughter is going through this anxiety right now. And I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, you know, then I used to to work in uh, foster care and adoption, but we had a diagnosis for, for children that were pretty, you know, angry, and maybe they were in foster care, and we would say, darn mad for good reason. So we could say, you know, darn anxious for good reason. But sometimes, again, the parent might not connect that is related to what the what the parent is feeling so you know it's that those mirror neurons you know mm-hmm. that the child feels and picks up on what is being experienced by the parent and we even know for those mirror they're censoring mirror neurons too by the way so if a child watches someone else touching somebody else that child will experience that touch as if it was happening for themselves whoa so, yeah it 's really powerful, so anyway, the mirror neurons and that co, you know the regulation so if the parent is not regulated it 's hard for the child to regulate, so once the parent is regulated for themselves, then the child can can better regulate for them themselves. Anyway, back to the COVID and, you know, what we're going through right now is children are being impacted by it. But we, you know, I saw this comic, uh, my sister is a, uh, a school teacher and she sent me this this comic. And so the the parents were saying to the child, okay, well, they're saying it's time for you to go back to school. And so, you know, the child's like looking at the parent with this like really worried face, and they say to the parent, they said, "Well, when do you go back to work?" And the parent said, "Oh, when when it's safe, I can go back to work." <laughs> right. So it's like, okay, it's safe to go to school, but it's not safe to you for you to turn, return to to uh, to work, you know. So here we have this paradox, you know, and of course, there's a lot of anxiety for for children now having to. There's some children actually going back to school, and some are are having the experience of doing the telehealth as well. Or the tele, I say the telehealth, but I mean school online. And that (laughs) opens up a whole new avenue of the children having to listen live to the teachers in the classroom and then they're not hearing them, you know. So there's just so much pressure, you know, on the parents now and they're wearing so many different hats and the children are, are are having to learn new things and experience new things in life and be exposed to things that they've you know for all of us that we've never ever had to go through before.
0: So true. And I mean even as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just thinking so many different aspects of what what you're talking about, like, you know, that comic that you mentioned is a good example of how we can understand with our left brains, like, that doesn't make sense. If the child is, is safe to go to school, but the parent isn't safe to go back to work, that doesn't make sense. But children know when it's like they know with their bodies that the parent's feeling, this is not right, but they're saying it's okay. You know what I mean? And that incongruence can be so distressing for the nervous system because the child looks to the parent for comfort reassurance, like, am I safe? And if the parent says yes, but their body is saying no, you know what I mean? Or there's the child senses that the parent doesn't even feel safe, even without the words,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's it's not what you say to me, it's you know how you're saying it. You know, children are, you know, I, I, I say the superpower of kids is their ability to, especially infants, to use their, their body language to talk. But they're also, uh, I was watching some research about this, that they're really attuned to the body language of the adults around them. And they pick up on the cues of the body language and also the tone of how the parent is talking to them and, and what they're saying. But they also are so... So aware. I mean, everything is this, talk about subliminal messaging. You know, we're we a lot of the meta communication that we understand. I mean, we pick it up as, as infants, we pick it up as, as children. And it's, you know, the children are feeling that in their bodies. And again, like you were talking about, the incongruencies now that they're experiencing and that are being said to them. And of course, all of us now are hearing a lot of incongruencies in the media of what to believe and what to understand about what we're going through right now. So it's, you know, a very, very trying time.
0: Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and I do want to say just, just to be really clear about this for everyone who's listening that, I mean, we know the parents are doing the best they can, the kids are doing the best they can, the teachers are doing the best they can. Everybody is in a situation that nobody wants to be this way. And it's because of what's happening. It's because of the pandemic. But, you know, I think the point, the purpose of our conversation is to help everyone who's listening to understand in a deeper way what how all of this is impacting all of us, including children and families and but not to be pointing fingers or anything like that. And I certainly don't think that you were saying that, but I just feel like it's important because I feel what I see in our collective, in our culture right now is so much finger pointing about the schools are rushing to reopen. The parents do have to work. They need the kids to be in school. The kids need to be learning, but also the kids need to be safe. And you know, not just physically safe from getting COVID and exposing their families to COVID, but emotionally safe. It's just like I, the word unprecedented keeps being thrown around. And I really think that we haven't had a challenge like this. It's just so intense and really like there's just no answer that's going to resolve, make everything work out the way we want it to. You know, it's just it's a really tough time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you, of course, you bring up a really good point is that we all are trying to do the best we can under the, the circumstances. And, you know, but there are things that parents can do to help their their children to calm and relax and, and be able to, you know, and, and I think a lot of it comes back to if the parent can help themselves for self-care, if they can help themselves find ways to you know come back to themselves that's what i kind of call it and once they're able to come back to themselves and and get themselves in a good place then they're able to be with that that child, and it comes back to the the concept again of touch. And you know, I talk about touch. I'm talking about nurturing. I'm talking about caring, caring touch and respectful touch. But it's we do know that if a parent can provide good caring touch to a, a child through like a hug, that it releases those positive hormones in the body. The the, the oxytocin, the, the serotonin can be released. But what I want to say, though, is for that to happen, the caveat <laughs> is that the touch for the oxytocin to be released, the touch has to happen for at least 30 seconds in mm-hmm. order for that to be released. And again, the caveat uh, the other one is that the parent has to be regulated and calm before they provide that, that good caring touch to the child. So if the parent's anxious and obviously you know, if the child's upset and they're going to try to give them a hug, it's not going to work because the child's just going to, again, feel the anxiety of the parent so as practitioners we can help the parents find ways through mindfulness techniques to be able to to calm and it doesn't take long i mean 5 minutes 3 minutes 1 minute of of mindful type of awareness of bringing my attention back to my body and you know and just focusing in on that breath And then, you know, teaching that to the parent before they give that, interact with their child, you know, but if the parent's upset and they're anxious, then the child will feel that.
0: Yeah, so true. And I want to go back to something that when you were first talking, something that came to mind for me was, you mentioned how the, let's say the parent lost their job and the child knows the parent is looking for a job and they get a pit in their stomach and they feel like... I'm scared. And the parent notices and says, what's wrong? And the kid says, I don't know. So that's, that's one way it can go. And another way is I'm thinking with younger kids, they don't necessarily really know what a job is. They don't necessarily really understand that the parent lost their job, but they know something's wrong and they can feel it in their bodies. And then they don't, they may feel the pit in their stomach, but they may not be able to express even an, I don't know, or the parent may not be able to pick up that something's wrong, but can you talk about how, I mean, I think I hope most of us who work with children who've experienced trauma will, will know, but can you talk about how kids show their reactions to traumatic situations in ways that aren't really verbal?
1: Right. And children experience and express depression express anger and anxiety very different than adults can. So for children that are, you know, angry, well, you know, a lot of times that maybe it will come out and be expressed as as anger. Mm-hmm. For children that are depressed, sometimes it may come out as, as, as anger. You know, you might not necessarily see a child down or, you know, being, look like we could typically think someone would be depressed that they're, you know, they're, they're down and they're not saying anything. And, you know, maybe they're crying, but maybe they, some of the behaviors are off some of the behaviors could be, let's say that the child, I'm thinking about a young school age child, and I know you were talking about the younger children, mm-hmm. but sometimes children that are depressed, if maybe the parent says, okay, you know, you have to pick up your toys or you have to do your, your schoolwork now. But maybe there would be some type of resistance to that with the parent. Maybe they're going to ignore them. They're going to not, you know, they might say no, or they, you know, so they have some conflict that is starting to happen between the parent and child. And oftentimes, it's when the child is feeling not connected to the parent, where, you know, i always say that connection builds cooperation, but that like can that. Show, show up as being depressed or, you know, some of the other things that are, are going on with them that we just have to, we have to be good. You know, I teach it when I work with parents, I talk to them that we have to really be good at learning how to read the child's nonverbal behaviors that it's a it is a language, it really is, especially for the young children, the infants or the toddlers or the, you know, children zero to three age, teaching parents how to pick up on the cues of what that child that what that infant is trying to say to them because a lot of times they don't have the words to express how they're feeling they can't say no they can't say I don't like this don't do that or yes even so we have to look at the body language what is reading the face and some parents um, come naturally uh, to be able to to do that but some parents maybe they had a lot of trauma themselves Maybe they didn't have um, a secure attachment relationship or someone who provided good experiences in those first three years of life, which we know is so vital and so important. Uh, so if they don't have that internal working implicit memory of it, it's hard for them to give that. And then at the same time, it's hard for them to recognize it if it wasn't given to them. Yeah. So it comes naturally, but it comes naturally the way they learned it or the way it, that was given to them or the way that they experienced it as an as a infant and as a child. It goes hand in hand. That there's no way to separate it. Let's just pause
0: for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love Therapy Notes. I switched to Therapy Notes a few years ago, I'd say it's about 3 years now, I believe, and I have never regretted it. I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but Therapy Notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes. And there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, give therapy notes a try. You can get two free months by using the code therapy chat. Now let's get back to our interview. Yes, absolutely. So it comes naturally if they received what they needed when they were a child. But if they didn't, it doesn't come naturally because they didn't get what they naturally needed to.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: right. well, I'm also thinking about how children with anxiety often I think about like not just with children with anxiety, but traumatized children. And this collective experience of living through the pandemic, I think, is a collective trauma for all of us maybe can be less traumatic for the children whose parents are able to help them stay regulated, you know, who are able to help them feel safe and secure. It may, they may seem to be more resilient in getting through it. But I think to me, the the answer to why some people are more resilient is if they have a more secure attachment. That's my my theory. Um, (laughs) But, you know, children with anxiety or reacting to trauma with an anxiety type response, oftentimes they might be like running around screaming, you know, and it might just look like they're being wild, (laughs) but really they're showing that something's off for them you know and i think and then the parent may just react with wanting them to be quiet or trying to corral them and get them to be still and do what like the virtual learning what they are supposed to be doing during that time so also for the parents who are working at home so they can work
1: exactly right and as you're you're talking about this i my mind kind of flashed on one of the the chapters that i wrote in the book is about nature and the importance of, of nature to our m- mental health, but I really believe that, that during this time, you know thinking of how parents can help their, their children, how practitioners can also guide parents to help their children is if we can have access, if, if parents can get outdoors and if they have a park they can go to, or you know a backyard, or, you know, just anywhere, because nature we know really is restorative. And even in therapy, when I was working with children, and maybe the child was dysregulated and in the office, I would say, you know what, let's just, just go outside for, for, you know, just for a few minutes. And, you know, I had a private area where we could go and, and just get some you know, fresh air and just let's just walk for a few minutes. And I tell you what, I, it totally shifts the, the, the perspective, you know, it totally shifts. And I I'm kind of flashing on uh, a case years ago that I worked with. And um, it was I was working with the reunification, between a a father and a, a young child and and i realized very early on in this very difficult reunion because there was a lot of parental alienation going on that I had to get them out of the office and I had to get them, you know, in an outdoor type of environment so the child could have more breathing room and more space and feel safe to, to be able to, you know, put as much distance between her and her father as possible. And I have to say this dad did a, a really wonderful job of, of just being really understanding and patient but over time as i worked with this case the the outdoor setting of a park and you know just being able to help bring that relationship back back together again. I, I just felt like was part of the healing process to be out in nature. So parents during this time, and I know a lot of people are turning towards nature during this time of, of COVID. And recognizing and appreciating nature a little bit more, but we can help support the parents that we're working with to find ways that we can get them out and give them tasks, you know, of like, you know, maybe doing a scavenger hunt for the child, you know, the parent can go out and say, let's do a scavenger hunt and, you know, our at the park or let's find something, the rainbow walk, you know, let's find something green. Let's find something blue. Let's find something yellow. And, but that can absolutely shift the energy. So if there's stress happening in the moment and the parent's not quite sure how to, you know, help the the child, say, you know what? Let's get out and maybe even sitting down in the grass, you know, touching the grass, touching the nature is, you know, so sensory oriented and listening to maybe some birds and helping the child tune into that. And by the time they're you're done with that and that they come back into the home, maybe there will be. More willing to be cooperative about okay now I can pick up my toys as mom is asking or now I I feel ready now to sit down and after this break from you know being at the computer and you know now I'm ready to go back and do some more schoolwork or something like that
0: yeah that's a, mm-hmm. a beautiful example and I appreciate you sharing that I'm thinking too about of course people who live in more urban areas some some cities have a lot of designated green space and some don't but would you say that for families who live in a place where maybe they don't have access to getting to a park just walking outside in nature with the fresh air is is still beneficial or should people in that situation try to get to a certain setting
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very aware of that, you know, that there are some places where people live where they don't have as much access to what you call green spaces. But there are ways that we can bring nature into the home. And even if we can... The parent can buy some plants. I know for me, I go to the grocery store, and I I know sometimes they have some herbs Mm. (laughs) for for sale. So I just like, you know what? Let me just pick up some basil, and you know, just and so even having that in the house where we can, you know, just take that leaf and put it in our hand, and then maybe we can take that the leaf and you know, like I'm just saying for basil, you know, and smell it. So we have some touch of the earth. Even, you know, I like to have, you know, stones or, you know, or, you know, we can pick up stones or, you know, of course, for me, I have a lot of, but uh, I'm a collector of gems and minerals. And I have a lot of different species of those, but I use them therapeutically with children in the, the office and, you know, the metaphor of the, the stones and things like that. And I talk about that in, in the book. But I think also, if we can get outside, even on the balcony, and breathe in the fresh air or breathe in the air, and I, you know, of course, as I say that, I'm very aware now that, that the fire is happening in, mm-hmm. um, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, and, and I know uh, that the air quality is very poor and they're not able to to get outside. So uh, um, if they're able to have any type of, again, going back to the plants or animals, and you know, some a lot of families do have cats or they have dogs, and they're so. If we can have a pet for for a child, even if it's a fish, <laughs> it's so valuable for for children to have some type of access to to pets while while growing up you know, just to be able to look in the fish tank or to be able to, to go to their, their cat and pick it up or to pet their dog. I mean, it's so helpful to for children during this time. Mm-hmm. I had a child that was telling me that they could tell all their secrets to their doggy. Aww. Yeah, so that, yeah. You know, so how do you when you're feeling upset? How do you help yourself? Well, I tell my dog all my problems, <laughs> like you do. And I said, and, and does that help you? How does that help you? Oh, that does help me. And he doesn't tell anybody.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> that's the, you know, you're reminding me, I don't work with children now, but you're reminding me how wonderful it is to do therapy with children, just their fresh perspective on things and the way that they speak so earnestly and, you know, just so genuinely is it's sweet it's just so wonderful just makes me feel so loving towards them you know motherly <laughs>
1: Well, you know what? That is the truth, that what I love about children is they're so real. Yes. And I think that's what, you know, draws me to this work. And the other thing that drew me to this work is I realized when going to school and, you know, all the theories that we're learning that we, we as adults can become very, very serious. Yeah. And so children kind of remind us and they help us to remember what it is that is our resilience that's part of our resilience and that goes back to play and this is you know what I've spent a majority of my life focusing on is the power of play to heal and so I always felt that you know children you know working in the office you know becoming a you know being a play therapist a lot of the training as a play therapist came from the children
0: (laughs) Mm, yes.
1: And one of the examples I, I give is when I was first starting out to be a play therapist, and this was back in the late 1980s. And back then, we didn't really have all the training. Oh, my goodness. We have so much training now that we can, you know, many different options. So I felt like I was having to learn how to be a play therapist, you know, at the by the seat of my pants. Yeah. But there was one little boy I was working with and He had, you know, I had some play materials out on the floor and there were these little army figures. And so he had the army figure and he gave one to me. And so I guess there was a battle going on and his figure shot my figure. And so he said, I shot you. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, so you're dead. And I'm like, oh, goodness me. I'm dead, so I take my figure and I put it down on the on the floor, and my figure is dead and of course, then I got very quiet and I just allowed my body to kind of sink and be you know kind of you know in a kind of a quiet state of being dead and so finally, you know then he went on he was playing and playing, and he's kind of watching me and he finally said, "Okay, you're not dead anymore, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. <laughs> So, what I learned was when you're working with children is your, your character you know, if the child tells you that you're dead, you're dead until the child tells you that you're not dead. so that was my first 101 lesson of play therapy, and oh. I had a, a lot more to, to to go so my children have really helped to um, help me master this topic of play.
0: Well, and and what you mentioned about adults can be so serious, I think that really sort of resonated for me because I can remember when I was, before I became a therapist, I remember when someone suggested to me coloring for stress relief. And this was, you know, before the adult coloring books came out. And um, I, I just remember having like a, almost like a revulsion, like coloring, (laughs) I'm 32 years old. I don't color, you know, and just like, that's for kids, you know, that it was like an immediate, like, no way kind of reaction. And of course, something to be very curious about, and (laughs) was definitely something that helped me understand more about myself as I explored why I had that big reaction. But, you know, as adults, we don't, we don't really play. We do things like we do activities for, we may play sports, but it's competitive, you know, so it's not just like free play, you know, it may be fun and it, I'm not saying it doesn't count, but it's like the way we typically play is like a means to an end. And when the way kids play is just to play.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And at the same time, they, they know that we forget okay is that play is intrinsically healing Mm -hmm. it truly truly is and it reminds me I had this uh little girl and the mother actually the mother told me that she said I told my daughter that my mother her grandmother had died and she said the reaction that she had is she just looked at me she was really quiet and then she said, Well, I think I need to go play now. Mm. So, this child knew in that moment of what she needed to do to help herself feel better in, in that moment. So, that really is a lot of the theme of my book, you know, healing child and trauma, uh, family trauma through expressive and play therapy. So, some of the chapters in the book focus on working with parents and families together with their children. And so part of what I'm doing in that session is trying to help that parent to go back and feel comfortable with being a play participant with with their child. And so a lot of what I'm doing is modeling a sense of, you know, what I call maybe just letting letting myself be open in the moment to model to that parent uh, an okayness to play again and to be open to the play and to be willing to listen to their child's play. Because children's play is so luscious. So in this time of, of COVID that we're, we're going through, another healing method and way that we can support parents to help their children through this time, is to support them by suggesting ways that they can play with their children or if they have a session with the the parent and the child together. A lot of therapists now are, are taking their work to online to doing telehealth sessions. And so, a lot of what is helpful, especially with the younger children, because telehealth with younger children can be challenging mm-hmm. because their attention span is. I mean, they just don't have a long tension span. So it's best to have that parent present when they're working, especially with the the younger children. As the children get older or, you know, especially with teenagers, it's, you know, obviously different that they are able to connect and and do the telehealth a little bit easier. But with the younger children, I always recommend it's it's better to to have the, the parent and child together or maybe a short little moment, you know, 15 minutes or something with the child and then have the, the parent present it all depends on on the child but part of what we're doing is maybe promoting some play therapy type of intervention with that parent and child and then giving homework for that, giving some homework that they can do this together, you know, during the, the, the their day, you know, after work or after school or, you know, in the evening or in the morning, whenever they have time. And sometimes we help to ground that, you know, when was a good time for you guys to do this together? I have a... My storytelling technique uh, its called first play kinesthetic storytelling. It's a, a model for older children, like three years and above. And this is where I guide parents to help to uh, tell stories to children and we create stories together. Um, but then those stories are told on the child's back. So I call it, it's a kinesthetic. It's adding the touch piece to therapeutic storytelling. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. But what we're doing is, is we know that uh, touch, how important touch is, to helping that child to regulate. So uh, creating a method where we have therapeutic storytelling in connection to providing touch is just kind of, you know, it's like we know therapeutic storytelling is good. We know that that touch is good. But then taking those two, I call it the the Reese's peanut butter cup phenomenon, (laughs) (laughs) you know, taking those and kind of putting those two therapeutic techniques together. But who does the touching? And so we take, we, in this model, we assign the parent to be the therapeutic person, the change agent, so to speak empower the parent to provide that. Because, you know, especially beyond telehealth, we have sessions together, there's always concern about the therapist touching children and the liability of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've done some research in the the area, and I have some publications related to to touch. But, you know, I, I actually surveyed a, a large group of, of practitioners. And of course, that was always a concern that maybe touch could be the child would misconstrue it. And then, you know, that we, you know, we work really hard for all our credentials and it would be very upsetting for a child to say that the parent therapist touched the child inappropriately when we know that that never happened. So if we know that touch is important, then who can provide that touch? So we have the, the parent do it and we guide them and I use a stuffed animal and, you know, I teach my practitioners to do that. I have a, a training that I offer. So they guide them on a stuffed animal while the parent does the motions with with the child. But anyway, what I'm saying is, you know, during this time, that would be, for an example, one thing that parents can do with the children beyond just a session. That could be like a homework and say, oh, when can you have like a, a storytelling time together? When would that be? When would you be able to do that? So you have to ground it for parents, you know. You can't just say, okay, now do this. So you have to say, let's let's think of when the best time would be. And, you know, in the morning, at night. And so that gives it a higher percentage chance that it's going to do to really happen. And we have to ask that of our parents, too, when we're working with them to make that commitment that they're going to – Put into action some of the the techniques and interventions that we're teaching them, you know, can put that into action when we're not uh, with them, because we might be only with them like one hour a week or every other week or something like that. So all the real work happens outside of the sessions with parents and children.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support, so when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code THERAPYCHAT, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thank you for listening to
1: Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.
0: Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today.